Welcome, everyone, to <laughs> officially the first episode of a new podcast hosted exclusively on Substack and available on all the various podcast platforms. Um, this is the illusion of consensus where myself, um, a journalist uh, writing on Substack, used to write for the New York Post and the Globe and Mail, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, an epidemiologist at Stanford University, were just coming together and examining um, the different kinds of scientific consensus and where it has failed us, where it is misleading, and where it's right. And we're just going to be trying to gain a larger and more holistic understanding of what has went on over the past three years over the co course of the COVID-19 pan pandemic, which has brought a lot of uh, new policies and a lot of changes in our society. And it's certainly worth the time to investigate what went wrong and uh, where we can better place ourselves for the future. So, Jay, welcome. Thank you, Rob. Uh, it's so good to be here with you. And I think uh, the, the theme of the podcast is absolutely perfect. I think three years on after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, the, ro the role that science plays in society has fundamentally changed. We are now in a place where uh, the, the, it's very clear that, that science has far more power over our everyday lives than we ever thought possible. Um, and, uh, and, in, and in fact, the idea of consensus in, in science uh, has almost a, almost a like magical effect on, on what happens in reality. So I think it's absolutely appropriate that we start a podcast where we talk about uh, about uh, about science, about what uh, about what consensus in science really means, what science really is all about, and the theme of uh, of looking at what happened during COVID, I think, is a perfect place mm. to start. Yeah, I think the COVID nineteen pandemic has made many people question what is considered scientific consensus and potentially question other areas of science. I mean, I've, I've been personally investigating a lot of different personal medical and health topics. And especially when it comes to mental health, let's say I've, I've been learning more and more how many of the mainstream consensus driven uh, prescriptions and ideas of how to deal with mental illness are far from holistic or accurate or, or just, just healthy for, for many people, including myself. But that, that is one effect the pandemic has had on me personally. And for many people is we, we typically assume that the scientific process is free from any politicization or any external influences. And we trust that this product I'm ingesting or this intervention I'm going to undergo, whether it's, it's surgery or a prescription drug or a certain kind of medical test that this is about as free from any kind of nefarious or external influence as possible. And so we kind of group science into this different category, different from say journalism or the social sciences or liberal arts per se, where things are more subjective and open to interpretation. But the pandemic really for me has broken <laughs> that more naive perception, I would say in retrospect. I mean, the funny thing is I, I've been doing science for you know decades. Uh, I don't, I've never thought of it as some, as this like monolithic thing where everyone must agree. Uh, the most interesting parts of science are the, are the, are the, are the, the areas where scientists don't agree, where uh, we're sort of at the edge of what science knows 
Um, and you know that's a vast area, uh, it turns out. Uh, and that and that in that area, the disagreement among scientists is fundamental to progress. So to me, to watch during the pandemic, this idea of consensus turned into essentially a, a, a tool for power. Uh, it, it, it undermines what I've always thought about as the, as the most important, most fundamental thing about science, which is this ability to use our, our, our own judgment, our own knowledge to create hypotheses and then interact with others who have different ideas and then put it to the test using data and, you know, the, the, that process takes a long time. Uh, consensus, honestly come by, takes centuries. Uh, to, uh, to have this idea that you could so rapidly decide what is true and false on the, on the edge of, of what's known in science during the pandemic has been a shock to me. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important point of differentiation of what what, what is legitimate scientific consensus where where disagreeing or questioning or challenging it doesn't really make sense versus things that are. I mean, I mean, I'm sure all scientists, let's say, or 99.9% of scientists agree, like drinking water every day is healthy and good for you. Like no one's going to yeah. challenge that consensus. It's important to have a rich and diverse and nutritious diet consisting of different kinds of um, vegetables and meats potentially and dairy items and, and, and different things. Right. That, that's another kind of consensus when we talk about nutrition and health science. But I, I think many people equated uh, policy prescriptions um, around the vaccine lockdowns and school closures during COVID to be on the same level of some of those other things that I mentioned that are indisputable. And, and I think that is a big question that we're going to gradually and carefully explore um, over time of what 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 is legitimate consensus and what is it and there, there's a potential danger in all sorts of different directions of well if this is not a if this is really not the consensus that people were made to believe then what are other areas of scientific consensus that aren't legitimate and and obviously there is that danger of questioning things or going or, or deviating beyond certain uh scientific consensus that is legitimate and is true um, and so there's a, there's a potential for a lot of confusion and chaos due to what the COVID-19 pandemic has created. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in, some, in some sense, it, it puts science where it kind of belongs, which is this, this humble thing where we admit our ignorance about vast swaths of the physical world. And then we use uh, our knowledge, our logic, our, our reasoning, our, our experimentation to try to you know, sort of scale back some of some of that ignorance, uh, and it, the knowledge is hard won. Um, uh, rather than something where if oh if if science says it, it must therefore be true automatically. That's that's a that's a problem. That's not how, that's not actually how science actually works. Uh, and we've seen that during the pandemic. What what's happened? Um, I guess this might be a good time to turn to what happened during the pandemic uh, and, and talk about something that happened to me uh, just a couple of weeks ago is that I got to go give testimony in front of the U.S. Congress, uh, in front of the U.S. Select Committee on the Coronavirus uh, Pandemic, uh, on, uh, on what should happen regarding an evaluation of the, of the, res of the, of the, of the uh, policies that we followed during the pandemic. 
Uh, it was interesting, Rob, because there was there was essentially there was, you know, there's the U.S. Congress. So there's two different uh, parties in, uh, there. The, the Republicans were in charge of the thing. So there were three uh, three witnesses on uh, chosen by the Republicans. I was one of them. Uh, the other two were Marty McCarry and uh, also Martin Kuldorf. Martin Kuldorf is a p- professor uh, uh, on leave at, at, at Harvard in, in biophysics and epidemiology. Um, Marty McCarry is a is a surgeon and uh, epidemiologist and health policy uh, expert at Johns Hopkins University, um, and the and the, the the Democrats uh, they invited uh, uh, a, a man who was the head of the American Public Health Association. Um, so it was it was interesting. It was like th- three on one, and the, and each of the Congress uh, men and women got to ask questions. They had five minutes to ask questions. Um, you know, the, the really interesting thing to me in that conversation was that from there, there, there seems to be emerging two very, very distinct views about what happened during the pandemic, two different histories, two different screens in which to evaluate what happened during the pandemic. Uh, so let, let me let me spend a couple of minutes talking about what that what those histories look like. Um, on, on the one hand, on the one hand, you have what, what the, the the history that the, the Democratic congressmen and women painted, uh, where the the central problem of the pandemic, the central problem of policy of the pandemic, is that uh, that uh, the Trump administration and other governments did not take the pandemic seriously enough early enough. We, we didn't lock down hard enough. We didn't develop testing and tracing capacity quickly enough. We didn't use that uh, testing and tracing capacity to, to quarantine uh, populations uh, rigorously enough. We didn't have enough masks and PPE. Misinformation and disinformation by, by various actors, including people like President Trump, misled people into not complying with public health orders, which then undermined their efficacy. Uh, that that there were like people like uh, 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 Scott Atlas, who President Trump brought in to advise him, didn't understand the science and undermined brave leaders like Tony Fauci, who, if only we had obeyed him more, uh, we would have we would have avoided many, many deaths. Um, once the vaccines came, the problem was that, that vaccine misinformation put out by by uh, by charlatans led to not enough people being vaccinated and that the vaccine mandates were necessary to force enough people to get the vaccine so that we could achieve herd immunity. And the fact that, that, that it, it, uh, we, we, the vaccines failed is, is, is a result, failed to, to essentially eradicate the disease is a result of vaccine misinformation. So that's, that's one version of history. I don't know, what's your reaction to that history, mm. Rob? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think it's a very complicated picture and I, I think I think parts of that do, do seem right to me, at least just from the surface level. I mean, obviously, misinformation is a problem uh, when it comes to vaccines and when it comes to different pandemic measures. And there are a number of online influencers who have led people to potentially make certain decisions that aren't in their best interests. But I, I think the, the solutions implicit within that Democrat history that you've just outlined and and the solutions that were were taken and measures that were taken in order to combat some of those uh, issue, issues, particularly the misinformation, I think 
were a net negative in terms of censoring online content. Um, I mean, we've just had multiple series of Twitter files. The most recent one on Stanford uh, uh, Virality Project, which showed that they were attempting to silence people for sharing um, true facts and legitimate views on the pandemic, including true vaccine stories, for example, because it might promote vaccine hesitancy. So while while I share certain concerns there that the, the Democrats expressed to you at that hearing, the many of the solutions that, that they implemented and many, many solutions that they would support um, seem deeply problematic to me. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, the underlying premise that we didn't take, that there were elements of society that didn't take COVID seriously enough, that itself needs challenging. So for instance, um, what is the actual death rate from infection from COVID? Uh, early in the pandemic, people were saying that it was people like the World Health Organization was saying that it was something like three or 4% case fatality rate. That's a very misleading number, as you know, right? We don't uh, measure case fatality rate as the me- as the measure of, of how deadly disease is because the case fatality rate only looks at people who come in to the, you know, come in and been identified by public health as having the disease. Well, early in the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of testing. That was a very select group of people. A lot of seriously ill people were found to, to have the disease and then three or 4% of them died. That's very misleading. In fact, the infection fatality rate turns out to be based on other studies uh, that actually measured the disease, the, le- the amount of antibodies in the population, including ones that I've ran, to be something like 0.2% in the, the community at large, and it, with a very steep age gradient. Older people, people in nursing homes at a very, much higher rate of, of death from infection, maybe three, four, five, six percent whereas young people at much lower rate of death, uh, you know, vanishingly low, near zero. Um, so it, it's, it's not, that's not misinformation to say, here's what the true infection fatality rate is. And yet, if you were to say that in the early days of the pandemic, you were going to be deemed a COVID minimizer. You're going to be censored. Um, so, so let me let me tell you what I think the the the, the other side was saying. The the, the Republican mm-hmm. the Republican history. Sure. It's, kind of, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, first of all, I think a lot of what you just said. I think that that that, that is really a part of a fundamental part of the of the Republican history. Republican history says, look, um, that the, there was a lot of manipulation of the, the pandemic policies to create, uh, to, 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 to grab power. And it's not just political power, it was grab, power grabbed by, um, obviously by, by uh, political parties, you know, maybe even the election of President Biden. Um, uh, but also there was the use of the, these sort of powers of government, um, uh, you know, the, actors within government, people like Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, to suppress true facts about how the, about, about the science of COVID. That in fact, these, um, these powers, such as Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, head of the NIH, try to use their, their, uh, their position to create an illusion of consensus within the scientific community in favor of their ideas. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the result of that was that many things that might've been done better were done poorly, right? So for instance, 
one theme I saw among the, the Republicans was that, uh, that, that it might have been possible to use early, early treatment options like uh, hydroxychloroquine or, or uh, ivermectin. And if those had been disseminated early, then maybe we would have su suppressed a lot of deaths. Um, that, uh, that, that, there, that, that, uh, that there was a lot of worry about uh, that the information that was used, the pressure that was used to, to make people get vaccinated suppressed true facts, like the, the existence of vaccine injuries, especially, you know, things like myocarditis in young men, which is, I think, pretty well documented. Um, I have to say, on the, on the, and then, and then um, that we should have let frontline doctors play a more central role and have less, uh, less pressure by, uh, by public health to determine what doctors did with their patients. Um, so I, I've said, so let me, let me, before I let, give, let you have a chance at that reacting that I should say a couple of things. One is I, I don't, I'm not certain. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain I don't, that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, but I didn't know that in the earliest days of the pandemic, that only, that knowledge only came over time as uh, a number of, of randomized trials started getting done. Uh, ivermectin, there was a lot of mixed studies and I actually, honestly, I'm not certain one way or the other, what it, role it might've played positive or negative in the early days of the pandemic. But that to me itself was a problem. That's a problem because we should have had an answer to that with a high quality randomized trial or set of them run by the American government, in particular by Tony Fauci's group, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Um, I, I, I agree that doctors should have been free to play a much bigger role. A lot of doctors were quite frustrated because they were told to tell patients, essentially, if we were sick, you know, in our patient settings, essentially tell them to just wait until they were so sick that they had to go to the hospital before they could do anything. And a lot of doctors wanted to try try things that uh, that you know may or may not have worked, but certainly might have been better than doing nothing uh, for their outpatients. Uh, so I think I agree with a lot of that. Um, I, I don't know that it's the whole story, though. Um, I don't know. I'm curious what your reaction is to that. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not particularly convinced either way on the whole ivermectin issue. Um, and that being said. I haven't spent a lot of time digging into the data. Uh, people like Brett Weinstein have dug deep into the data and have come with the conclusion that there is strong evidence that it is effective, but other uh, credible people question and challenge that, that narrative. Um, but I, I think the, the real issue is, is that the, the, those things were suppressed in the absence of good data um, in either direction. And so, if you have a drug like ivermectin that has been given in, in doses in, in the millions across the world with, with a, um, a very strong safety profile and certain physicians want to use it um, with their patients and they're finding some success with it perhaps or not, um, I, I think they should be allowed to be able to do that. And same thing with vitamin D. I mean, many doctors that I've spoken to, a great doctor, Dr. Mike Hart in um, uh, Ontario, Canada, um, He's been talking about vitamin D from the start, and he's felt there's been a lot of pressure to not talk about vitamin D because it might promote vaccine hesitancy or it might promote some kind of alternative health narrative with regards to um, uh, COVID in general. But I, I think that I think there is a rational critique to be made about how public health authorities completely failed 
in discussing uh, preventative measures for COVID as well, like exercise and vitamin D can be part of that and sleep and diet. That's, that's one thing that Joe Rogan was emphasizing a lot on his podcast of all the public health authorities are saying, go get double, triple, quadruple vaccinated, but no one's talking about um, exercising. No one's talking about sleep. No one's talking about uh, preventing obesity by improving your diet and removing processed sugars, for example. Um, all those things were, for some strange reason, not considered part of the narrative. Um, only the pharmaceutical industry and their benefits were considered priority over um, natural preventative measures that many people could have taken um, in order to prevent serious COVID illness. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that, and I, let me just echo the the, the point that I, I I mean about that I agree with the most, and probably is the most important. You have a new new disease that's come on the scene. There is no established treatment for it, and uh, there are a lot of people that are that are uh, you're feeling quite nervous about it, and and especially since the public health authorities have told them that the death rate is very high from it. Um, they're in outpatient settings. They go to their doctor, and the doctor wants to be able to do things for them. And the, the things that they're proposing are things that work with other similar respiratory diseases, right? Things like things like uh, 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 getting get being in good shape, so that when you get sick, you're not so not you know not don't you know you don't get a, such a severe version of it. Um, if you're if you're sick, tr trying drugs that are, that are uh, that other doctors are saying have worked for their patients that are actually pretty safe. Why did we not allow that to happen? Why instead did the U.S. FDA, for instance, when Ivermectin, when Joe Rogan said he took Ivermectin, um, why did the U.S. FDA turn turn around and put a tweet out that said that uh, Ivermectin effectively is for horses, not for humans, even though billion humans have taken the drug safely? Um, it was, uh, I think, so in that sense, I agree with the Republican idea that the, the, one of the major problems was we didn't let doctors try things when there was uncertainty. And we certainly also didn't uh, ev evaluate rapidly enough the, um, the, 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 uh, the, 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 these treatments that doctors are trying. Um, the, in fact, the, the U.S. trial sponsored by the, U uh, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease on iromectin called Active 6 didn't complete until late 2022. We needed that information in 2020. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's something to the Republican history. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Democrat history, I have to say, I'm, 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 less, uh, I'm less inclined to believe. Uh, it, mainly because I don't, first, I, the, the, the scientific facts about COVID that I think were most relevant in early 2020, and in fact, through the whole pandemic, were known very early, right? So, for instance, this idea of age stratified risk that older people were at much higher risk of dying from COVID, that was known in the early days of the pandemic. You could look at the data coming out of China. You could look at the data coming out of that, that cruise ship. Remember that Diamond Princess cruise ship? Um, you could look at the data coming out of Italy and see very clearly it was older people that were dying at high rates from COVID, not younger people. Um, the, the fact that there was immunity after COVID recovery that was very, very clear um, within, by, certainly by the summer of 2020, there were fantastic papers in Cell and Nature describing not just the fact of immunity, but also the, uh, how, what 
or the mechanisms by which our immune systems react to COVID to prevent um, severe disease on reinfection. And then finally, the facts about lockdown harms. I mean, was there anybody who understood, uh, like failed to understand that closing down schools was going to be harmful to kids, especially poor kids? I, I just, I just, that wasn't even a scientific question. That was not a question at the scientific frontier. There, there was a consensus. Well, there was no, it wasn't an illusion. Everyone agreed that schooling was very, very important for our kids and not just for uh, what they learn, but also for their, for their futures, their future uh, uh, prosperity, yes, but also for their future health. Kids who do, who essentially are denied school lead poorer, less healthy lives. That was a scientific consensus, I thought, before the pandemic. Um, so I'm less inclined to agree with the democratic history simply because of, because that's true. Uh, the other thing I think we should have suspected and was probably, I don't know why it wasn't so clear. The disease was already in country when we shut down. So the shutdowns happened uh, in the North, North America, starting in, in what, like March something, 2020, mid-March 2020. Um, the disease, uh, there was no, there was no uh, blockage of, of travel from China f until like, I think, February. Already then, there were already a tremendous number of cases in China in January. Uh, there was a lot of travel between China and the United States and Canada, for that matter, uh, in December January, December 2019, January 2020. And actually, it turns out there's evidence from Italy, from stored blood banks in Italy, that uh, that found that blood collected in September 2019 actually had COVID antibodies. The same is true in Angola. COVID was seeded around the world before the pandemic really took off. And what that means is that even if we'd locked down earlier, even if we'd locked down harder, uh, by the time we realized that it was there, it was already too late. The, the, the barn, you know, the, the horse was out of the barn, if you will. Mm. Right. Um, but j just to play a bit of devil's advocate, um, per se, or, or not even devil's advocate, because I think there, there is a legitimacy to some of the Democrat history, and that is the problem of misinformation that I just want to linger on for a second. And I think I think it is true to say that Trump was responsible for a lot of misinformation early on under his administration. Um, in 2020, uh, he said the virus was going to disappear. It'll be like a miracle. It'll go away soon. Uh, the pandemic will, will fade pretty quickly. His promotion of hydroxychloroquine, those kind of things um, were, were, were genuine misinformation. I think Democrats are right to... To point that out, when you have someone like Trump in office, even if you like many of his other policies or support him on the economic front, um, when you have someone who's just so recklessly and irresponsibly uh, saying such things about the virus without um, any solid clinical data is is definitely troubling. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do agree. I think um, that, that President Trump, his leadership on COVID was very, very um, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, spot. I mean, I'm not sure how to put the word right. Um, it, it was uh, like so. For in the early days of the pandemic, for instance, uh, he resisted having a uh, a shutdown of travel. 
Now, I actually think that was a, the, the right decision. I don't think tr shutting travel down in January 2020 would have done much good because, as I said, I think the disease was already seeded. But then he turned around in February and banned travel from um, China and Europe. It was already too late. It was already in country. There was not was not real good reasoning there for why he why he chose why why he chose to do that why why he chose to wait. Um, the, the, I say the Democrats at that time seemed funny to me also. Like they were they were at the, at the time criticizing Trump for the travel ban, um, uh, and and they were they also in a sense were minimizing. I remember there was a there was a big parade in New York City in January, uh, and Nancy Pelosi walked with the uh, paraders. Uh, Essentially, I think it was like a Chinese uh, Chinese New Year kind of kind of thing, and um, and she was saying, "Look, this is it was racist to ban travel from China." Um, I, I, like my reaction to all of that is, they politicized something that should not have been politicized. What should have happened is that in the early days of the pandemic, there there should have been assessments of how widespread the disease already was. We should have had an, a uh, a seroprevalence study, study of antibodies in the population um, in the United States starting in January 2020, as soon as the virus hit China, as soon as we sort of be became into our consciousness, so we can understand, was it already seeded? That would have allowed good decision-making be, to be made about uh, travel bans, about uh, about 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 all of you know where where best to put the testing um it would have it would have allowed us to make much better decisions very early and it would have depoliticized the thing so rather than this really dumb fight about whether uh, a travel ban from china is 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 racist or not racist um it, the right thing should have been to see how widespread the disease already is. I, I can think of situations when a travel ban makes sense. You have uh, country A where there's a very, very, very high prevalence of disease and country B where the disease isn't at all there at all. It's a very serious disease, say, then you might want to ban travel. Mm. But to justify that, you need to establish those facts, not just assume them. And so a lot of the weird political infighting between Trump and the Democrats in the early days of the pandemic were like it was <laughs> both both sides basically minimized the disease uh, in the early days of the pandemic. And then they were like competing with each other to maximize the disease. Um, all of that was just actually it's because it's a it's a failure to not develop the scientific evidence to make good decisions early enough, in my view. Mm. And Trump's promotion of hydroxychloroquine too, too, too fast, right? Yeah. So he's like essentially saying this is going to cure the disease when he's, there's not enough information. So that's a that's a problem. Shouldn't the president of the United States should not be doing that? Um, at the same time, I saw uh, the medical establishment, including people like Tony Fauci, say that hydroxychloroquine is a dangerous drug. You know, I took hydroxychloroquine when I was when I was a medical student in in, in uh, working in in um, in India because malaria is prevalent there. I took that as a prophylactic drug. Um, it, mm. it it's not inherently an unsafe drug. You can use it for 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 for, for lots of things in the right doses. It's not it's not inherently unsafe. Um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis patients use it now all the time. Still used for malaria pretty commonly. So. Um, it's what should have happened on Trump is that he should have just stayed silent about a drug that hadn't been tested for use in this in this setting. 
what should have happened with Tony Fauci is he should have run a very rapid study of hydroxychloroquine, a, a randomized study of the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine at, at, a, at appropriate doses to see if it actually does work and prevent. He would have found that it probably doesn't, given what the randomized studies found. But instead, that quasi-debate was allowed to linger for, for a long time. Um, and with, with like essentially this, you know, you had one political party saying it works and one political party saying it doesn't work. Just there, you know, automatically that that's not medicine. That's not science, right? Science does not have a political bias. There's no, there's no left-wing bias to science and there's no right-wing bias to science done properly. Science is going to surprise you no matter which political stripe you're on in, I think, eventually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Now, so what is your sense of, of what has failed? I mean, we've already talked about some of it, but hearing the Democrat and the Republican versions, some of which you agree with on some sides and some that you largely don't agree with on, on the other side, what, what, what is your sense of what, what led us to great failure? I mean, I think, I think if I had to put my finger on the root cause of, of the failure of our pandemic response, it's, it's censorship. It's the primary reason for pandemic failure. And so you, and let me let me address something you've you've brought up uh, appropriately brought up over uh, over and over again during or it, as, as a way to steal man's conversation. Um, you've identified misinformation uh, of certain aspects of, of our pandemic response that involve uh, involve like trying to fight misinformation, right? So public officials like President Trump saying things that aren't rooted in facts. Well, um, there's a flip side to that too, right? The flip side is that the, the censorship of misinformation prevented the correction of bad science. And that in turn led to bad policies. I mean, I actually, I am of, I'm of the opinion that had this sort of censorship industrial complex, which is characterized the, the media discussion and the scientific, uh, often the scientific discussion during the pandemic not existed, many, many people that, that died would have been alive, would be alive today. We would have had much, much better policies had there not been this, this censorship. Um, I mean, I, I think like to, again, to Steelman, you could say, well, we needed to censor because misinformation spreads very easily on social media. And as a pandemic, we had no choice, right? So you have um, some charlatan writing something on Twitter and it goes viral and all of a sudden people are drinking bleach or something, right? That's, that's the idea or, or, the, or the president says yeah. it. Um, um, but but the, the problem is like those kinds of viral cascades, if you have a public health authority that has a lot of, uh, that, 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 has, that actually is trustworthy, are not that hard to fight, right? So for instance, how many people actually drank bleach? From that, that, that uh, I think misinterpreted trust, Trump, uh, Trump uh, uh, press conference, where, where I, I don't, I'm not sure that he actually pushed for bleach, but let's say, let's say you people misinterpret that way. I don't think there was that. I mean, I think that the issue is like that. That really didn't influence that many people because there was a concerted effort by the press, by scientists, to tell people, no, this is not. This is a really bad, really, really, really bad idea. Don't do this. Right um, mm. there, you had bad information fought successfully with good information. Yep. That is the right model. 
the other way you could have tried to address this is by is by by censoring this these the, the people that that said these things. So so why don't we take take a a a, a, a counter example, which I think illustrates my point. Or a counter example is bleach thing that illustrates my point. Uh, and that is the idea that after you've had COVID and recovered, that you actually have fairly good immunity after you after that point. As I said earlier in the in the podcast, it was very clear by by July 2020, to me anyways, that that, that that was true based on the scientific literature. And in fact, everything I've seen up to up, up, up since then has, verif has verified that, right? So for instance, there was an Italian study from um, the study data from, from 2020, and it found that those people who had been infected and recovered in Bergamo, Italy in early 2020, um, a full year later, only 0.3% of them had, had been reinfected. It's very clear that, that the immunity lasts uh, at least up until the next variant. So you won't get reinfected until the next variant. And even when you are reinfected with the next variant, it's very likely that you will uh, be less likely to get a severe reaction to it. So it'll be much, um, you know, tends to be a milder illness the second time around. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the science. And yet that fact was censored by social media all through 2021. And even into in twenty in twenty twenty, that fact was censored by the social media. Right, and then the narrative when the vaccines came, which we'll we'll table for sure for other podcasts, um, was that you know still despite natural immunity, the vaccines were somehow going to still prevent um, further uh, interactions with future variants, or it was going to prevent severe illness despite natural immunity when there was no good data for, say, younger, healthier populations that on top of natural immunity, there was some substantial benefit to getting two doses of the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and the, 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 the funny thing about that censorship, and you, you've put your finger on it, it led to bad policy. A lot of the policies regarding um, you know, vaccine mandates or vaccine passports those policies were premised on the idea that the only way for someone to be safe from giving, uh, like risking, risking spreading the disease was if they'd been vaccinated. Well, what about somebody who had COVID and recovered? Shouldn't that count? A lot of those people in 2020 were essential workers, you know, heroes of the pandemic, people who, you know, doctors and nurses who were front on the front line, people are, or, 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 you know, delivery men and women who were uh, frontline, they were, they, were, they were actually taking the risk of keeping society going, and many of them got COVID and recovered. Why not count their status as essentially immune in all these social policies? Why demean them uh, as if they were sort of second-class citizens just because they just, if they decided not to take a vaccine? Um, that was not have anything to do with what the scientific evidence was saying um, and censorship prevented that from, from that being known. Well, um, I, I actually, uh, uh, do you mind if we, let's, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about the mechanisms of how censorship actually work in the modern world. Cause it's really, it's really important. It's very, it's very different than I think people think. Sure. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, so, so like, how is it, how could you suppress a scientific fact like that, like immunity after, after COVID recovery? Well, I mean, it's, it's not like you can stop the meta, the, the, the scientific 
press from publishing those facts. Like you can go do a search on PubMed and find all of the papers that I, I read that convinced me that it was a scientific fact uh, in July 2020. Um, you can go find them, right? The 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 there was no there was no book banning or 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 journal banning, if you will, that that got rid of those. So whatever the old-fashioned mechanisms censorship, those are gone. That's not exactly. That's not how it works. Um, the 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 key, the key to modern censorship is 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 two mechanisms. One is by uh, one one is to to divert the attention of the public away from true facts through the use of of selective authority to false facts. Right, so you have entities like the CDC publishing, U.S. CDC publishing terrible research with bad methodology, somehow concluding that natural immunity is not particularly effective, and then and 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 then and then putting it in like into infographics that are spread both by the the news media and by social media in social media to try to convince the, the public about a, about a, 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 on a topic where the CDC got, got the science 100% wrong, uh, well, that, 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 that they were doing it right. They, they use their authority to censor the idea, the, the, a scientific fact about immunity after COVID recovery. And what do you think was driving like research like that from the CDC? How did their studies conclude that natural immunity wasn't effective? I mean, do, do we know what what kind of forces were in play that led them to create such uh, abysmal research? I mean, you could, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Professor John E. Needy's here at Stanford uh, once wrote a, a very famous paper where he said something like ninety five percent of all scientific research is wrong. Um, you know, it's it's the norm that you would have. Oh, public, I'm sorry, of published papers are wrong. Um, it's the norm that papers, uh, even published papers, get things, get, don't, don't, don't do things quite right. Um, there's off, often a clash in science uh, in, in journals among people trying to understand what led, uh, sort of what mistakes other scientists have made in their work and trying to correct them so that they get, you know, the, get the right answer. Um, that, that's just normal. So there's one very innocent explanation that they were just doing bad science, just like off a lot of science is bad. And it's, it's, they, they came to a conclusion that was wrong. Uh, you know, there were, there were bad, there were studies that I think were wrong published then using bad methodology. Now I, I do this for a living so I can look, read those studies and say, I don't think this methodology is appropriate for trying to answer the question they're trying to answer. So I don't believe the study. Right. Um, whereas the, the, the studies I did believe I thought had much more rigorous methodology. That's one innocent explanation. Um, the question is like, why did the CDC embrace less rigorous methodologies than, the, than, than, than many, many other people in the scientific community that were studying immunity after COVID recovery? And I, I don't just mean um, other random scientists out, out, out in the real world. I mean like other scientific uh, public health agencies, like, the, like for instance, I learned about the immunity after COVID recovery from um, this fantastic set of studies done by this uh, group, I think sponsored by the public health group, uh, uh, entities in Qatar. Sweden was producing excellent studies on this. Uh, there were there was a the, the the Danish were producing excellent studies on this. 
there were public health agencies around the world that were using much more rigorous, uh, convincing methodologies to produce answers. So I just don't, I don't think that it's, it, you can just say, well, the CDC was incompetent and that's the only thing. Why were they not looking at what the other scientific agencies uh, outside the United States were doing as far as this was concerned? Why were they ignoring good science produced by independent scientists on this? Um, they were ignoring, if, I mean, like if you come into this not knowing anything uh, about about COVID uh, immunity after COVID recovery, you would have thought that, well, why don't we look at what the other, what happens after infection with the other coronaviruses? Does that produce immunity? And the answer is yes. You can get infected again a second time, but it'll be, it's going to be mild um, the second time, right? So it's uh, because you have some immunity, at, at least until a new variant. And even after the new variant, you have immunity against severe disease, right? That's that was that should have been our sort of default when we were thinking about this. That should have been the default of the public health community. So I don't I don't think it's simply you can explain it by saying, oh gosh, they just didn't know because they were they were uh, they, they did incompetent science. I, I think part of it was that the CDC viewed the idea of immunity after COVID recovery as a dangerous idea, that if the public believed it that they would not comply with public health orders, right? So for instance, um, uh, when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, there was, uh, so you know, the, those who are listening, Great Barrington Declaration is something that I wrote uh, with, with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford and Martin Kuldorf of, of Harvard in uh, October, 2020, where we called for uh, lifting lockdowns uh, and focused protection of vulnerable people. And one of the premises of the declaration was, in fact, immunity after COVID recovery. That the law, law, that when you've had COVID and recovered, you actually are are, are fairly well protected. Um, that was met by the World Health Organization changing its definition of herd immunity to exclude immunity after recovery from the disease. They were so afraid that people would listen to our uh, the, the the declaration by opposing lockdowns, that they actually had to deny a basic scientific fact. The CDC, um, I think you mentioned with the vaccines, um, Rob, I mean, I think that is actually exactly what happened. Like if, if it's true, and it is true, that people are immune, uh, have, have considerable immunity after COVID recovery, demand for the vaccines by those people are going to go lower, right? You're going to have less demand for the vaccines because the benefit from being vaccinated is lower for people who already who already have substantial immunity due to the due to uh, COVID recovery. They used the scientific platform they had, the the public relations platform they have. This is the CDC and public health at large to essentially deny a basic scientific fact to manipulate the public. Again, they use their authority to create an illusion of consensus about a, sci a scientific fact, except that the scientific fact they're pushing wasn't a true fact. It was the opposite of the true fact in order to manipulate behavior by people. Mm. And, and I think there was also potentially a fear that, well, if we say that natural immunity is effective, um, equal or more than vaccination, then what if, what if that encourages some people to go and deliberately get sick, like go into large crowds, uh, go into big gatherings, and contract the virus as opposed to getting vaccinated? And what if then that kills people as a result of that? I mean, I think that's like these very strong survival instincts were at the core of a lot of these decisions, whether they were well-founded or not, 
there was this sense of we have to preserve life at all costs. Like dying is an egregious sin and we don't want people to die. We don't want to needlessly uh, enforce or encourage people to make decisions that would lead to uh, uh, severe or deadly outcomes. So we're going to do everything possible to prevent any possible death on, you know, say, just in the, in the vaccine front, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think the funny thing is it's like that that by adopting this stance that we can uh, we the, the the high and mighty CDC can tell people false things in order to manipulate them. That actually, I think, doesn't preserve life. It actually ends up doing the opposite, right? Maybe in the short run, you get people um, uh, very scared about COVID, even if they had COVID, uh, had immunity because of COVID recovery. Um, but in the long run, it undermines the authority of public health authorities that actually potentially could use their platform to give good advice to people. It actually, I think, undermines uh, undermines public health and, the, and thereby reduces, it actually ends up with more death. Um, so it's just, it's one of these things where just, you, the, like the ethics of public health, at least I, as far as I understood before the pandemic, um, would involve never telling a, no, a lie like that, never, never telling a noble lie to manipulate behavior. It's just what I thought was, seen broadly as unethical. I do think, I still think it's unethical. Um, you've got to tell people the truth, even if it makes your life difficult in convincing them to do things you want them to do. Um, okay. All right. So one, use the authority of public health to tell untruths. That's one mechanism of censorship. The, the second is to destroy the reputations of 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 authoritative figures on the outside who are telling true things that you find inconvenient. Um, also destroy the reputations of, of, of figures on the outside who are telling false things that you find inconvenient. So it's, it's, it does cut both ways, but let's just, let's just focus on the, on the reputation destruction idea because that's how modern censorship works, right? So um, it, after uh, we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, um, me, from Stanford, uh, uh, Sunetra Gupta, she's from Oxford, and Martin Kuldorf, he's from Harvard. The head of the National Institute of Health, Tony Fauci, uh, I'm sorry, Francis Collins, wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling the three of us fringe epidemiologists. This is four days after we wrote the declaration. <laughs> I'm like, just absorb that word, yeah. Rob, for a second. Fringe, fringe epidemiologist. Uh, we're not reputable scientists working at some of the world's best institutions. No, we're not. We, ha we haven't really just, we don't have like, a, you know, decades of history of publications in peer-reviewed journals. No, we're not leaders of, sci of scientific fields. No, none of that. We're fringe figures saying dangerous things. The head of the National Institute of Health used his power, abused his power, to try to destroy our reputations in order to get people to not listen to us and listen to him instead. And Tony Fauci signed on. Uh, shortly after he did this, this is four days after we wrote this, I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I want to let the virus rip. Mm. I, was I didn't want to let the virus rip. I had no desire to make, I wanted to focus protection of vulnerable people, older, older people. I wanted better, better protection. And we, put a lot of time and effort in the Great Bankton Declaration and supporting materials to say, what, what might we do 
to better protect older people. I, I publicly called for discussions with public health leaders for uh, brainstorming to, to figure out how better to protect vulnerable people in the wave that I knew that was coming in, in 2020, in, 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 winter, in late fall, uh, early winter 2020, early 2021. Um, so instead of that, instead of that conversation that would have maybe potentially uh, result in ideas to better protect older people, we had reputational destruction. Tens of thousands of doctors and epiologists and, and almost a million regular people signed on the Great Barrington Declaration. You, you signed on, didn't you, Ralph? Uh, yeah, I believe I did at the time. Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can still talk to you, my friend. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm on the right um, side. No, yeah. I, I think, I think the, the way, you know, your perception, the perception of you was damaged by uh, calling you a fringe epidemiologist. I mean, many, many people don't have time to think critically about these issues. Many people are raising families, putting food on the table, working tirelessly, and they just want to just open the newspaper or put on the TV and just, you know, consume information and try to uh, make decisions in the most efficient um, way possible. Um, so the, the, you know, many people who aren't looking into who you are, are just going to see that right away. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kuldorf, Sinetra Gupta are fringe epidemiologists and they're going to believe that. So your reputation, you know, has been damaged to a certain cohort of people who are just listening to the new, uh, uh, CNN or reading the Washington post or the New York times and just consuming that information as if it is, representative of the, the ground reality. Yeah, I mean, that's that, so that, that's how the censorship works, right? You undermine the authority of the opponents of your idea. And you uh, and, and by doing that, that means that the, so many people will say, well, why should I even listen to these guys? Francis Collins and Tony Fauci think they're fringe figures. They want to let the virus rip. They want they, essentially to, by undermining the reputation, you turn attention away from true facts to the consensus that you want people to think is there, is there. Right. Um, and so that reputational destruction is actually a fundamental mechanism of censorship. Um, I, I'd say like, if you, if you look at these two things together, right. Uh, this, this, this sort of like uh, uh, using the authority of public health to say false things, and then using the authority of, the National Institute of Health to destroy the reputation of scientists that the, that the that, you know public health authorities don't agree with. Those things together are more effective than any other censorship engine in history. You will you will you are going to succeed in making sure your ideas are seen as a consensus when it's when they are not, when they are actually truly not a consensus within the scientific community, when there's true scientific facts out there that contradict what you what you Tony Fauci think. Um, you can you can nevertheless ignore it and then say without irony to the public that if you contradict me, you're not simply contradicting uh, a man, you are contradicting science itself. And that's exactly what happened during the pandemic over and over again. Um, uh, let me just so like just to just to like wrap this up with a bow. Um, the 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 key thing here, like sometimes people say, well, look, social media can do whatever it wants, right? Uh, it can censor. It's 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 trying to like uh, control a conversation but, uh, away from like dangerous things. Like you wouldn't allow uh, violent threats on social media. That's a legitimate pe kind of censorship, I would think. Right? You don't want to allow um, a allow that those kinds of like 
uh, 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 really, really, uh, you know, revenge porn or, or like destructive things that, 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 that are like straight, straight up, uh, straight up violent threats or, or, or insurrections or something, right? That, that seems like a legitimate use of censorship power of social media. Uh, social media then should be allowed to censor anything it wants privately, right? It's, um, it's Elon Musk's pa- platform. Before that, it was Jack Dorsey's platform. It's, he sh- it's Mark Zuckerberg's platform. Why? Well, there's, they're private entities. Why shouldn't they be allowed to, to publish what they want or not publish what they don't want? You might argue that. Uh, the, the thing is, this censorship regime doesn't, isn't private, Rob. It's, it's actually fundamentally the government used its power to force social media to censor scientific discussion true scientific facts. Um, we just, you know, I, so I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, Rob, just recently, uh, Matt Taibbi did this fantastic deep dive into what Twitter was doing during the pandemic, um, early in the pandemic, especially 2020, 2021, before, before, uh, uh, before Elon Musk took over. And what he found was that it was that government entities were telling, uh, were, had a, had a, had a basically a, a a quick and easy line into Twitter. Entities like the the FBI, entities like uh, you know, like 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 the Surgeon General's office or 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 the CDC, they, they would they, often those entities would use third parties like uh, the, the the Stanford Internet Observatory in order to tell Twitter. Here are the people you should censor. Here are the ideas you should censor. And not dangerous ideas, just ideas regarding public health, even true facts censored at the behest of the federal government. Twitter, in effect, was the censorship engine of the federal government. Facebook, in effect, was the censorship engine of the federal government. I think even Google was the censorship engine of the federal government using the two tools, uh, authority, Promoting of, of supposed authoritative sources and reputation destruction to do it. Right. So, are they are they willing dupe? Are the social media companies willing dupes, or are they coerced? I think we have an answer to that question. Um, I've, I've been involved with a case brought by the Missouri Attorney General's Office and Louisiana Attorney General's Office against the Biden administration. Uh, I'm, I'm represented by the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Um, and what we found in that case, we actually got in that case, we have a federal judge in in, uh, in Louisiana who allowed us to, to depose, you know, at, at, bring in for questioning Tony Fauci, um, depose a, a, a dozen people within the federal government involved in this censorship industrial complex. And uh, what we found was a huge coordinated effort by the federal government to direct conversations online about COVID, about COVID policy, COVID science. And it wasn't just things that were actually scientifically false. It just wasn't just, let's not have people mention bleach as a cure for COVID. It was true facts or, or, and forget about, and even, even forget about true facts, also even disputed ideas that where, you know, where scientists should be allowed to go online and dispute with each other about, well, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if ivermectin works, right? That should be something where people should be able to go online and, and, and fight about and bring their, bring evidence to bear 
qualified scientists should be able to discuss without fear that their reputation is going to be destro destroyed for for engaging in a scientific discussion, right? The government made sure that didn't happen during the pandemic. It's the it's the the U.S. federal government, and I think other other governments around the world, the the the, the U.K. government certainly, uh, the EU, other other governments use their power to suppress honest scientific discussion about COVID during the pandemic. Um, and I think that led to a lot of deaths that would have been, would have should have been avoided, right? So why did schools close? Because the, the the forces that were trying to point out that if school closures are not particularly helpful for stopping the spread of disease, weren't were, were their reputations were destroyed. Um, wh why did uh, why did vaccine mandates persist for so long? They're still there, um, even though it was really clear that uh, the vaccines don't don't stop transmission pretty early in 2021. Let's say by certainly by July 2021, that was pretty clear from the scientific data. Well, because the voices that pushed against it, people that, that were, were, their reputations were destroyed, often by just a simple slur, you know, anti-vaxxer. Um, uh, you know, or, or someone that's pointing out correctly that the vaccine causes, uh, you know, myocarditis at relatively high rates in young men. That fact, if you, I mean, I think you faced that, didn't you? That if you, if you say that fact, you're going to be slur labeled an anti-vaxxer even though it's a true fact oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah there, there was that and there was actually particularly it was um the other uh example for females the, the menstrual irregularities after vaccination occurring at very high rates um most of my young female friends actually experienced like incredibly painful and excruciating disruptions in their menstrual cycles and i just tweeted it out and both liberal and conservative friends of mine and other journalists just all just kind of piled on top of me and and were saying, well, this is misinformation. There's no data to prove this. Um, and then it took mm -hmm. actually uh, Ricky Schlott, who's a journalist at uh, the New York Post. Um, she, she's also my age. She had to come on and defend me and say, well, this happened to me, too, actually. So, you know, this is not just some conspiracy theory. This is a real concern and we should be able to talk about uh, vaccine side effects, but for some strange reason at that time, um, and, and I think we'll go deeper into the whole vaccine response in future episodes. It, it was the, the the case that vaccines were assumed to be safe unless proven otherwise, when it should have been the opposite. Vaccines should have been proved to be safe before um, they were supposed to. They, they were universally recommended to everyone um, to take as a necessary intervention at that time. So. The, the, the level of censorship and the level of pushback and how so many people um, just acquired this lazy approach where they just took the, 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 the truths that were espoused by the CDC and the FDA and the public health authorities to be unequivocal and un indisputable at that time resulted in so much harm um, and so much censorship at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and you know, basically, what what you faced was reputation destruction. And in fact, it, 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 uh, when you were pointing what you were pointing out, actually, you know, there's now papers in the scientific literature saying that actually you do have menstrual menstrual uh, disturbances that are caused by the vaccines sometimes. Um, and you know, there's you know, so so I think it's this is this is I think I think maybe we we we've, we've nailed this point. Uh, we we like we hit this point enough, but like it's 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 um it's one of these things where like if if we now allow this to become the norm 
uh, I don't see how science continues. I don't see how how trust in public health is is, is ever established. Uh, if if the if this these kinds of mechanisms of censorship are become the norm, as, as, in, in essence, you can't trust public discussions about science anymore. Because who knows uh, when the thumb is on the scale or not. Um, so yeah, so I think uh, I, I think uh, I, I, I think you know as a as a uh, as a public policy matter, this is something that we have to like take up and uh, and as a, a and push into the into public consciousness, right? So we uh, there's going to be reforms. There must be reforms coming out of this. This has to be a primary plank of the, whatever reforms of public health come out of this. That public health ethically should be enjoined against using these kinds of mechanisms of censorship to get their way. If they want to assert some scientific idea, they have to fight alongside everyone else on equal footing as everyone else, um, using the same kind of tools as everybody else, logic, data, evidence, um, rather than trying to use these tools to sort of put their thumb on the scale when they, so they, they don't deserve it. Um, okay, can I turn turn our attention to last the last topic I had for today? Sure. Yeah, love, yeah let's go right into it. Um, so I, I don't know if you saw this news out of the UK. Uh, there was a there's a health minister in the UK. His name is Matt Hancock. For former health minister, then uh, former <laughs> correct yeah. who then re- resigned, I believe, because of a uh, um, totally hypocritical and bizarre scandal where he was caught with violating his own lockdown orders. Uh, it's 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 a little more juicy than that. I think he was having an affair with his secretary yes. in in yeah. uh, the in number ten uh, with you know the build the building where the prime minister lives. Um, anyways, yeah, yeah d- during 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 lockdowns, uh, he was he was anyways. He, there's lots of things about him that are interesting, but like he what, what he did was he 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 wrote this book about his experience as the former health minister, uh, disgraced former health minister, and in in doing so, he he had uh, given access to a journalist to a Slack channel where he's discussing with um, bureaucrats inside the UK government, um, with other, other uh, prominent p- uh, people in, in the UK political hierarchy about lockdowns all through 2020. And uh, I think into 2021, the journalist actually re- uh, released these files publicly because she thought it was worth it was they were so important that the public know exactly what basis did public authorities make these decisions that affected the lives of so many people. And um, maybe it won't surprise you to hear this, but it, uh, much of what happened, much of the decision making around school closures, around uh, quarantining, around uh, around uh, uh, variants, around uh, mass mandates had nothing to do with science. That these that these policies were actually uh, a, a, uh, came out of a political process with political uh, expediencies at, at the central place in in decision making by politicians in the UK, and I suspect almost everywhere else everywhere else around the world, almost everywhere else around the world. Um, that, so just to give some juicy things about this, um, you remember you remember when the variants first came out, Ralph? You remember that was like what, like December twenty twenty, if I remember. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it was it was it was interesting. It's like uh, they they seem to come out of nowhere all through twenty twenty. No one's talking about variants, and yet all of a sudden the, the there's a the, the 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 vaccines get rolled out, and then 
almost immediately right after that, the variants, the, there's the first variant, I think it was the, I think called alpha. Um, the, uh, there's this really, really juicy bit in that Slack channel for that Matt Hancock had, uh, that, that was leaked from Matt Hancock. Well, what, what, that, what, WhatsApp, that, right? He, WhatsApp, I believe. Was it a WhatsApp? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a what's you're right. It's a WhatsApp thing where he says, um, where he says, uh, that, uh, in effect, he's he's talking with this like health this this bureaucrat. He's like, well, uh, where they in a sense in effect say, how should we time the release of the information about the variant to create maximum panic in the population? How do you time the release of the information about the? So they're sitting on this information. That this variant is is come out. The at the same time you have this vaccine campaign that's just starting to roll out in December 2020. And what Matt Hancock is worried about is not protecting people from the variant. What he's worried about is timing the information about the variant to create maximum panic so that it induces enough people to want to take the vaccines. He doesn't want people to think that if, if there's a variant, that means the vaccines won't work. So he's telling people, he's trying to figure out, should I release the information of the vaccine about the variant now or later? What impact will that have on the, um, on the, on the uptake of the vaccines? Instead of just telling the public, look, there's a new variant, our scientists have found a new variant, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and honestly just talking with the public, he's using it to create maximum panic. Uh, there's another bit of this Slack, this Slack, uh, this I keep saying Slack channel, this uh, this WhatsApp discussion, um, where he uh, where where he, he he's discussing he and some ministers are discussing about these quarantines, like in 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 part and sometimes during the um, the 2020 lockdowns in the UK, if you flew to the UK, you were essentially had to like sit in a in a shoebox hotel for two 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 weeks, yeah. even if you were negative or something, and they're like. Uh, unusually gleeful, I'd say, in uh, in in thinking about how they're making all these poor poor people trying to get home um, suffer, uh, in, you know, in in isolation, even though actually there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't any evidence that uh, that that you needed two weeks of isolation in order to like guarantee that the person didn't have COVID. In any case, COVID is spreading all over the UK anyway. So what's the purpose of these two week quarantines? Um, the, there's another bit, right? And then that 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 quote, I'll just say it for people people listening. Um, and I, I wish this were made up or some cons- conspiratorial speculation, but it's actually an exact quote. Uh, it's I just want to see some of the some of the faces of those coming out of first class and into a premier in shoebox. Hilarious. <laughs> oh so, yeah. So this, so this is between Hancock and uh, the UK's most senior civil servant. Uh, Simon Case and they were messaging each other um, and, and then Simon Case said that and then uh, he said hilarious afterwards. I mean that that and of course the, the one that you mentioned earlier already about letting the variant rip to, to panic people I mean it, it's incredibly disturbing and stunning to me that political priorities are first in line rather than public safety and public health. I mean that that is just egregious and should shatter any illusions that people in power what would despite whatever they say whatever slogans they use are there 
solely for the people or solely to protect and to uh, save people. I mean, there are many other considerations behind the scenes that we never learn about. But fortunately, this journalist who um, <laughs> uh, Matt Hancock probably naively uh, trusted with these private WhatsApp messages just shared with everyone. Right, This is how we, we got access to this. He hired some lockdown skeptical journalist to write a book um, about him. And then she just recently released this all in the Telegraph. And, and so credit to her for revealing uh, what many people would have thought of as a conspiracy theory, but this is right uh, in front of our eyes. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, w- one other juicy bit, maybe we can finish, but uh, the, the, there's a, the discussion about mask mandates is really interesting, right? So uh, the, the, it turns out that in the, in the UK, the definitive thing, or in England anyways, the definitive thing that, that led the government of England to, to uh, push for mask mandates was that the, that the, uh, uh, the prime, the chief minister, prime minister of, of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, was pushing for ma- what was adamant that they needed to have mass mandates and wanted England to have it, and they just they just wanted to avoid a political fight with Nicola Sturgeon, even though the they weren't convinced that the evidence that mass mandates did anything was there. Just straight politics, resulting in uh, this policy that is very very divisive policy about mass mandates. Uh, which may actually have like fooled people into like, you know, so imagine some, some older person using a cloth mask thinking that they're protected when they're not and they go out in public and they get disease when they might've been able to avoid it. Um, like who knows what actual health effects it had, but that had nothing to do with the decision-making. What had the key to the decision-making was that they wanted to keep their political rival in Scotland happy and not pick a fight with her. Um, the, and it's and all through you see this like they're using the media to push propaganda. The media to them is just a tool to try to try to get their way. And uh, many of the media people that they interact with are all too happy to agree to to, to do what they do their bidding. Um, it's 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 an absolutely if anyone that that uh, reads this and says oh yeah we follow the science and thinks we follow the science they should they should take a look because. Uh, they, what that what you'll what you'll see is what happened during the pandemic. A lot of the decision making had nothing at all to do with science. It was it was a it was a uh, uh, it, it, and in fact um, science played a secondary role in much of the decision making, um, both by public health authorities and also by uh, by uh, politicians. Because if it, science had played a role, they would have opened up the discussion more. They would have been open to being corrected when the scientific evidence uh, became clear that it became clear the scientific evidence contradicted their 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 uh, beliefs and their policies. Um, okay, we've gone for a, a long time. Are we? Uh, I think we're. I think we might have exhausted our audience, Rob, for now. But we'll we'll be back, won't we? Yeah, we'll yeah we'll be back next week. We'll be recording again about more topics. Um, but yeah, I, I think we covered all the bases for what we wanted to chat about today. So I, I think this was a really productive uh, conversation and I look forward to uh, continuing it very soon. Thank you, Rob. Looking forward to talking with you next week. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jay. And thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. All right.